Well, let's get to chapter 17. We're, we're getting near the end. I, I'd lo- I want to go to verse 41. We've covered that. But just to review, you, you know, the, the two champions in the Valley of Elah, it talks about where that is, and, and you're familiar with it. And the Is- Israelites, <clears throat> they're on the west side. The Philistines are on the east side. They're coming into Judah and the champions. And Goliath is standing there taunting Israel. He's nine foot, nine inches tall. He's carrying a, he's carrying a spear that weighs 15 pounds. He's, he's carrying these in, this enormous coat of mail that weighs about 125 pounds. He's a formidable enemy of Israel, and he's taunting them. And then David comes on the scene, and if you look at verse 45, which I, I just love this, David said to the Philistine in verse 45, chapter 18, you come to me with sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Elohim of the armies of Israel. I used all of those covenant Hebrew names for God there. But this is triumphant. This is triumphant language of David. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth. That the earth, notice the purpose of this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know, meaning all of the people of Israel that are watching this, may know that the Lord, and the, the, the title there is Yahweh, saves not with the sword and the spear. The battle is Yahweh's. And he will give it into our hand, our plural, Israel's hand. So, you know, I I don't think I need to repeat this other than just to reaffirm the extraordinary faith of this young Na'ar. I told you that Hebrew word, youth, a teenager. I mean, contrast him with Saul. Saul's way back, kind of cowering in fear and all that. So here's David standing right in front of this Philistine giant, nine foot, nine inches tall, and saying these triumphant words. They're words of faith. They're not words of fear. I I think it's interesting. David said, I come to you in the name of basically God. And then he says, who you? Right. It's almost personal. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Exactly. He's, he's saying, "You're God. I've been down today." And That's right. And, and again, David is seeing it through the eyes of God. Yahweh saw those great covenant names there. That when you are taunting Israel, you're taunting God. When you're mocking Israel, you're mocking God. And Jim, would that be true today? Yeah. Yeah. In 2023. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, so also sent sent himself or tried to send himself in, in dressing David with his armor and, and stuff. Um, and Saul so still looking at the secular aspect of Very much so. and, and not see the faith aspect. Very much so. Absolutely. And David goes into the battle with the tools of a shepherd, as we talked about last week. Well, let's look at the very familiar account of, of what happens in starting verse 48. When Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
He put in his hand, he put his hand in his bag, took out a stone. I, I talked about that, that Hebrew word stone. That is about a two or three inch size stone, roughly the size of a baseball or so. So, I mean, this isn't just a little tiny pebble. These are significant. And I told you about the slingers. Didn't I do that? I think I did. No, I drew no. that. I told you about the slingers last week. This is this isn't an unusual part of ancient Near Eastern warfare. It isn't. But David had used his sling when he was a shepherd. He's never used it in warfare. Now he's using it. But every, well, maybe I should say army. Many of the armies in the ancient Near Eastern world had a division of slingers. The army of Israel, their slingers were Benjamites. There were 200 of them. That's discussed later on in, in the Old Testament. Well, I'm getting way beyond the point, but I don't want you to see this as something unique in, in the sense of military. This was not an unusual thing in the ancient Near Eastern warfare to have slingers. And that, that's what David, he's using what he used against the, the lion and the bear that we talked about last week. He's now using it against the Philistine. So David prevailed over, I, for, I forgot the verse, excuse me. Handbag took out and struck the Philistine in his forehead. Now you can just, I showed you how that, that works. You gain the velocity and then you let go of one of the strings. I mean, it takes tremendous skill to do this. Did I tell you in one of my trips to Israel, my, my friend, uh, who's my guy, he's really a close friend of mine, he knew a Palestinian kid and he asked this kid to show us how that works. It was incredible as he would hurl that sling at, at, and he hit the, the, the tree every single time. Uh, and of course, they also use those against the IDF forces in the West Bank. But that it was just it was an amazing thing to see. And it just it was for all the people that were on the trip, it confirmed to them what David was doing here. And when you practice and practice and practice, it's a deadly weapon. And that's they would they would use that to knock out the opponent, and then you go over and cut off their head. <laughs> That's medieval, or that's ancient warfare. Uh, I apologize, that's it. Sank deep into his forehead, he fell to the ground. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no, this is really an important verse, there was no sword in the hand of David. He went into battle with the weapons of a shepherd, as we talked last week. So what is David going to use? To cut off Goliath's head. Next verse. And David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, meaning Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. If you look at one of the maps I gave you, Gath and Ekron are two major Philistine cities. There were three, there were five major cities. These are the two major ones. So basically what the text is saying is they chased them back into Philistine territory. It is an awesome victory for Israel that day. I mean, it's just an incredible, an incredible victory for Israel. And God is the one who did it, of course, through David. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. I don't need to explain you what I mean. That's gathering all the loot. That, that was the Philistine. So David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. That's a bit problematic because Jerusalem was not yet in the control of Israel. It will not be under the control of Israel until David uh, and his general Joab will take it from the Jebusites. 
<coughs> excuse me. There were a lot of villages around Jerusalem. It's it's just it's fascinating, and the Bible is silent on this. And it, it's why does David choose to take the head of, of Goliath the Philistine to Jerusalem? It's symbolic. It is symbolic of, but they don't own it yet. They don't control it yet. It's it's one of the villages outside. I mean, you know, Jerusalem is twenty five hundred feet above sea level. The Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe. Not, not necessarily the same tribe as one. Not at all. No, the Jebusites are Canaanites. The Philistines are Philistines. They're not Canaanites. They came from Crete uh, a couple hundred years earlier. So it, it's just interesting why he chooses to put his head there. It 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 seems to indicate what David will do later. That he knows he's going to be king because he has been anointed. We read about that earlier. He's still a teenager. He knows he's going to be king. And he sees the importance of Jerusalem. And it's an indicator, a symbol of what he's going to do with Jerusalem. It's just interesting. It, it is, it's, it's a fascinating choice that he makes. And that it doesn't explain why. It doesn't give us any details. It just says he did it. <laughs> As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, remember Abner is his commander of chief of his army. Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I did not know. Inquire whose son is the boy is. As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul, this is right after he kills him. Saul said, whose son are you, young man? I am the son of his servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, this too, what, what's happening here is Saul couldn't remember who his dad was. And so he wants to, who's your dad? Why? Because he wants a rewarding. What he had promised, he's going to reward David's family in Bethlehem. And so he wants to fulfill that vow, that oath, that, that, that commitment. And so now... David, all of a sudden, this little shepherd from Bethlehem, the youngest of the sons of Jesse, is now elevated to a very important position. He had been in the court playing the lyre, but he went back and forth. We talked about that last week, from Bethlehem to, to, to Gibeon, which is where Saul's kingdom, the capital of Saul's kingdom at that time. And so there's just now, now what's going to happen to David? The author chooses to explain something to us. He chooses to explain to us the relationship that David had between Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. Now, let's think about that for just a minute. If you were Jonathan, the firstborn son of Saul, what would your expectation be? That you're going to be the king. That the monarchy is yours. But Jonathan, unlike his father, Jonathan is a man of faith. Jonathan is a man who understands what God is doing. And so what Jonathan does, and again, the contrast between Jonathan and his father is marked here. Jonathan understands what's going to happen, understands that David is going to be the next king. And what he does is he defers to David and passes the cloak to David. 
And so that knits together a friendship that will really go on for the rest of Jonathan's life. Jonathan will be killed with his father on Mount Gilboa near the end of the book. But at this point, it's it's a very extraordinary and very atypical response of the eldest son of the king. He defers to David. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Now, Saul took him to him there as David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself, and this is really important, of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Symbolically, what, what is going on here? He's passing the cloak, so to speak. He's, he's passing symbolically the cloak to David. You are going to be the king. I'm not going to be. And so he recognizes that. And as the text said earlier, he, he loves David. They're, they're, they're going to make a covenant promise. They're going to be a series of vows they're going to make. We'll see the first one here in a minute. To David. What else does he do? Not only does he give him his robe, his cloak, he gives him his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. All of those are symbolic. He is passing the cloak. The word is primogenitor. I know you've never heard of that probably. Primogenitor is a practice that goes way back in the ancient Near Eastern world, was practiced throughout the medieval world, was practiced in the modern world, was practiced in colonial America, that the eldest son inherited everything. The eldest son inherited all the land, all the wealth, and so on. That's one of the reasons, I'm going to go without running show for five seconds, that's one of the reasons why so many Puritans came to America. Because they were the second, third, fourth son of these landowners in England. The eldest son got the land. What are they going to do? Well, when the opportunity emerged to go to the New World, they come to the New World. And in the New World, almost instantly, the colonial governments do not practice entail and primogeniture because of what was going on. Are you following me? That's a bunny trail. I'm going back to the main trail now. That's just interesting. So this is an extraordinary an extraordinary symbol of what Jonathan is doing here. He's passing everything symbolically that indicated he's the firstborn, should get the throne to David. Jonathan is a man of faith. He understands what God has done. He accepts what God has done and gives his loyalty and devotion to the new king, David. That's extraordinary because of what happens in the next couple of chapters with Saul, (coughs) his dad. And David went out in verse 5 now and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul sent him over the men of war. What does that mean? It means he gives David military authority. And largely, it's to deal with these continued punitive raids of the Philistines into the the territory of Judah. David's dealing with that. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, that again, that's a a very important affirmation. Jonathan's loyalty to David 
Saul makes him head of one of the military units to deal with the punitive raids of the Philistines. And the people, and when it says the site of all the people, that doesn't necessarily mean every Israelite, because you know, communication is difficult. These would be the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, the Levitical leaders. All of those are very pleased with what has happened. <coughs> but all is not well in the heart of Saul. And that starts in verse 6. All right, you with me? That's a tactic I use to take a sip of coffee. <laughs> and it, oh, that feels so good in my throat. Now, what I want you to do here is follow me in the remaining parts of this chapter and into the next chapter. There are four reasons detailed here in the text as to why Saul turns on David. Reason number one is found in verses 6 down to verse 11. Reason number two is in verse 12. So let's take a look at some of this, okay? Now remember, all that has happened, at least I, I don't think I need to review anymore, all that has happened in the last couple of chapters. David is now elevated because of victory over Goliath. Jonathan has deferred to that. Saul, at first, agrees that makes him commander of one of the tribal, uh, one of the military units to deal with the punitive raids of the Philistines. But look what happens now as the people are responding to all that's happening with David. As they were coming, verse 6, as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to none another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. How Saul going to process this? The first reason why Saul turns on David is David's growing popularity. And a narcissistic, unsettled, insecure man is going to regard popularity as a threat. That is exactly what happened. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, to me they ascribe a thousands. What more can he have? <clears throat> Kingdom. That's jealousy. That's insecurity. That's pure narcissism. I should be getting all the glory. And anyone that gets more glory than I is a threat to me. <clears throat> Every totalitarian dictator in history has followed that. Joseph Stalin, in his purges in the 1930s, sees a general that's getting more popular than him. What does he do? He orders him executed. Adolf Hitler, when he saw some general or some person getting more popular, what did he do? He orders his execution. 
He did that in the rise to power, particularly with the various groups within the Nazi regime. That's something you watch with a leader. A leader that is threatened by the success of people who work for him is not a leader you want to trust. Because he's a narcissistic, focused all on me kind of leader. And so Saul is threatened. And so the text says, verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. That is, that's how the ESV translates that. The, the idea of eyed, can you, can you picture that, that word, word picture that the author is trying to create? Saul is with a piercing gaze watching everything David does. Because he's threatened by him. The day, sorry, the next day, I'm in verse 10 now. The next day, a harmful spirit from God, we, we talked about that, rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So as we look at these reasons why Saul is turning against David, we're seeing some results. And result number one is he tries to kill David. And you are going to see this time and again and again and again. He's going to try to kill David. Now, number two reason why he turns against David is in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because of the Lord. Notice Lord there, Yahweh. Because Yahweh was with him but had departed from Saul. That takes you back to chapter 17. 16, actually, excuse me. When the spirit departs from Saul, comes upon David and so on. So it's, it's, it's unimaginable, really, that Saul would respond. Because when it says he's afraid of David, he's really afraid of God. Because God's hand is upon David, not him. Now listen to me. If Saul were really a man of strong faith, walking closely with God, what should he have done? Gone to the Lord with a contrite, repentant spirit and confessed to the Lord, told the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I know you've taken the kingdom from me. And I know you're not going to give it back to me. But I want to repent and regain my walk of fellowship with you. You don't see that. Verse 13, so Saul removed him, and the him would be David, from his presence, and made him commander of thousands. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fear for all of them. <coughs> Notice the first word of verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. So not only... 
does he fall, have fear and insecurity because the Lord is with David, he's also watching, as the first reason indicated, the growing popularity of David. You would put it this way. Everything David does, the Lord blesses. Everything Saul does, the Lord does not bless. You know, it's, it's really a contrast because when we see John the Baptist, Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Here is a man who I am not worthy to undo the last of yep. That's right. Uh, and he says, He must increase, and I must decrease. That's what Saul should have said, but he doesn't, of course. So, I mean, you're just seeing this um, delusional paranoia of Saul. If you want to give it a medical, mental health, that's probably a delusional paranoia now. This fear is going to grip him. It's going to, it, it's going to make him almost immobile. And he's going to start doing very irrational things. And it's the tragedy of Saul. Now, first, he tries to kill him as a result of this growing popularity of David, his fear of David. His jealousy is turning to paranoia. And so what he does is he comes up with a scheme, a deceptive scheme, a duplicitous scheme to get rid of David. Then, I'm in verse 17, then David said, Sorry, sorry. Then Saul said to David, here is my eldest daughter, Mirab. Now, remember, what had Saul promised? He who kills Goliath, I'll give him my daughter, which was an extraordinary act, very, very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought... Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Translate that and paraphrase it. I don't seem to be successful in killing him, but if I send him against the Philistines, they'll kill him for me. In one of these raids, David responds, who am I? Verse 18, who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel? He was part of that Ephrathite clan in the land grant of Benjamin. That I should be son-in-law to the king? At that time, Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, but she was given to Adriel, a Hothalite, for a wife. Okay, David, you don't want her? I'm going to give her to another man. So Saul goes forward. Now, Saul's daughter... Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, ah, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private, and say, behold, the king has enlightened you. All the servants now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words to the ears of David. David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. The servants of Saul told him, thus, and so did David speak. And Saul said, 
Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price. Let me stop there. What David said in verse <coughs> 23 can be paraphrased in this way. I'm a shepherd. I come from a shepherd's family. I cannot pay the bride price for the daughter of the king. What's another word for that? Dowry. I can't pay the dowry. I can't do that. And so Saul says, okay, I didn't realize that. So there's no bride price, which normally was money or, or, or crops or a land grant or animals or whatever. This is what he proposes to David. No bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Do I have to explain what foreskin is? Does everybody know what I, what foreskin? Okay. Now that might be interesting also because remember, the Philistines are uncircumcised. So in effect, David, you go kill and circumcise a hundred Philistines then bring me their foreskin. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistine. This will work. He'll never be able to do that. He'll get killed. Yay! Deceptive scheming to get rid of this popular growing insecurity that David's threat, his threat to Saul. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along his, his men and killed 200 Philistines. So what did David do? He doubled the bride price. David brought their foreskins. So he circumcised 200 of these dead Philistines and brought their foreskins. Were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michelle for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David and Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. <coughs> so Saul was David's enemy continually. Everything this paranoid, paranoid man does fails because the Lord is with David. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came, these were these punitive raids into Judah. David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. We see, Dave, we see Saul throw his spear, his javelin, at David twice. Failed. He constructs this scheme to give his first daughter to David. If you go, no, nope, didn't work. Third deceptive scheme. Go get 100 foreskins as the bride price. David comes back with 200. Everything Saul is trying to do fails. 
is this bringing David, excuse me, is this bringing Saul to the point of a contrite, repentant heart? Not at all. The opposite. His heart is hardening more. Everything God is trying to do, I'm looking at just from the perspective of the Lord here, everything that the Lord is trying to do to get Saul to repent isn't, Saul isn't, because his heart is hardened. And it's not only hardened, all of this is really against God. Because the Lord is with David, not Saul. There's a fourth response of Saul, and it's the rest, it's the rest of the book. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. That's the fourth result of Saul's jealousy, his fear, his insecurity, his narcissistic, paranoid delusion. One of you killed David. But who also heard this order? Jonathan. <clears throat> okay, are you with me? This isn't hard. This is actually very easy to get the flow of this section. Well, I think you know, what you're bringing up constitutes two for living and turning to God and uh, understanding people who perhaps don't and what might help them turn to God. Yes. Which is what we want to do. Yeah. This is an original thought with me. Uh, It it isn't one of my my mentors used to say this. When God deals with us, there are only two responses. A growing softening of our heart or a growing hardening of our heart. A believer can harden our heart against God. That's in the New Testament. It's used in the New Testament. And God's disciplinary chastening hand will be upon that child of his. And so Saul's a complicated figure. There's no doubt about it. But you will see this hardening of his heart and this insensitivity to everything that God is trying to do and this delusional paranoia where he's more and more governed by this fear is debilitating. It's, it's unbelievable to watch it. But this order that he gives to his servants and Jonathan hears it, presumably to him, kill David. So what does David, excuse me, what does Jonathan do with this information? But Jonathan saw side, Saul's son delighted much in David. Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, struck down the Philistine. The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced. Very important question. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened 
to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, this is a vow, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Is Saul going to keep that vow? That was not a rhetorical question. Is Saul going to keep that vow he made to God? No, he's not. Jonathan called Saul, and Jonathan reported him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Temporary restoration. David's in the court, presumably playing the lyre. Verse 8, and there was war again. I've told you this now many times. These punitive raids by the Philistines into Judah. And David went out and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow, and they fled before him. Then the harmful spirits, the third time that's used, from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the lyre. And David and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. This is a turning point. Because from here on out to the end of this book, David will be a fugitive. David is going to start running from Saul. David is a fugitive. He'll be an outcast from the royal court. And what we're going to see, starting here in chapter 19, the book ends in chapter 24, what we're going to see is a little over 10-year period, 1020 to 1011 B.C., a little over 10 years, David is going to be on the run from Saul. Now let's get back and get the 100,000-foot picture of what's going on here. Why would God do this? Let's use the language I used when I was answering Bill's question at the beginning of the class. Why would God permit this? Because after all, we read in chapter 16, the Spirit of God was taken from Saul, came upon David. Samuel anoints David as the king. Jonathan and others know that David to be the king. All the authority and power and, and, and the approval of God has been removed from Saul. So it seemed reasonable to me that immediately David should be the king. <clears throat> so why does God permit? Roughly ten and a half years of David as a fugitive, running all over the wilderness, being chased by Saul, hiding in caves. We're going to read, even for a time, he goes down to the Philistines in Gath. By the way, who is from Gath? Goliath. And hides out there. That's unbelievable. Why does God permit that? Isn't he growing David, shaping him by these experiences? Exactly. He's shaping and developing God's uh, David's character 
And I'm going to, at, at the end of this, I'm going to give you the six things that they, that God develops in David. We will get to that maybe before our Christmas break, if not right after, because I don't think we'll get this whole book finished the remaining time we meet <coughs> before our short Christmas break. But anyway, this is really important to remember this. When God chooses a leader, he takes the time he needs to develop that leader. David is not ready to be king. Not only does David's character need to be shaped, David's faith needs to grow. And so God is going to be shaping and molding David's character, and he's going to be deepening his faith. Now, we will, I'll do some allusion to this. I'll even quote from some of these. Where do you see this process unfolding in David's own words in the Psalms? And I'll highlight some of these over this 10-year period. David will write some of the Psalms during this period. And it's, as we read and study those Psalms, we see, as David reflects on what God is doing, he sees what God is doing. Other times when he resists it, he pushes back and he doesn't listen to God, but he always comes back. And the one thing about David, you always see David has a contrite heart. Perhaps what God said, I want a, a man after my own heart. You know, despite all the terrible things David does, in Second Samuel, as we'll see that, David, he always comes back to the Lord. Saul never did that. That's the tragedy of Saul. So we're at a very crucial turning point in the narrative of 1 Samuel. David is a fugitive. David's life as a fugitive begins. He's a Harrison Ford of 3,000 years ago. You don't know who Harrison Ford is. He's like, That's a really good movie, one of my favorite movies, but The Fugitive. Because I used to, when I, none of you know that show, but there used to be a show on called The Fugitive, David Jansen is The Fugitive. I really liked that show when I was growing up. And so when I saw Harrison Ford made a movie, I thought, I was in Texas at that time. I thought, man, I can't wait to see that. I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> I've always had a harsh view of David killing, or, you know, sending out Bathsheba. You and this, that wasn't an unusual tactic. No, it wasn't. So maybe the harshness against David should be. Well, it was it was a normal thing to do in the ancient Near Eastern world, but it not something that God approved of. But it was a normal thing. It was a normal thing. He wasn't acting atypical here. But the servant leader of Israel is not to be. He's not to be typical. He's to be. So anyway, so uh, we only have a few more minutes here in remaining. Let, let's get started with this life of David. And what I want you to notice in verse 11. Are, and we'll see it in verse 11, and we'll see it in the remaining sections. Two of Saul's children are David's advocate and David's supporter. The first is his wife, Michelle. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michelle, David's wife, now remember, she is the daughter of Saul. So just remember that told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michelle let David down through the window, and he fled and escaped. Michelle took an image, laid it in the bed, and put a pillow in the goat's hair, of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Now, that's interesting. It's really interesting 
because the term I read from the SV translation, the term for image there is an idol, which raises some questions about Michelle and her relationship with God. Does she practice idolatry? I mean, where did she get this idol, this image? And the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's just kind of interesting. So what is she doing? Well, she is creating this, it's a lie, this this, this misinformation uh, that this, what you see in bed, that's David. He's very, very sick. Verse 15, then the messengers sent, the, Saul sent the messengers to David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. If he's sick, you bring him here. When the messengers came and said, Behold, the image in the bed with pillows of goat's hair in his head, Saul said, Michelle, why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he's escaped. Michelle answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Is that true? Obviously, you didn't hear that question. Is that true? No. So she's not, it's the second time she lies. Because remember, she loves David. So she's David's advocate. She's David's supporter. David has fled. And so verse 18, David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth. <coughs> I'll talk about that in just a minute. And it was told, Saul, behold, David is Nioth in Ramah. Remember, by this time, Samuel was a very old man. Rama is his, is his home on the west side of the Ephraim land grave, not that far from the Mediterranean. And so David goes there. And that was a very reasonable, very logical, and very wise thing for him to do, to go to Samuel. So Samuel and David go down to Nioh. Nioh was a training center for the prophets. It was a training center for the spiritual leaders, and Samuel leads that. And it was told Saul where they were. Verse 20, then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing at its head, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, they prophesied. Saul sent messengers a third time and they prophesied. Now remember, we talked about this earlier. The term prophesy as a verb means they are proclaiming Truths about God. They're not giving new revelation. They're proclaiming truths about God. So it's it's almost like they're pro, it's proclamations about the truth. So every one of these groups that Saul sends, Niog, where the school of the prophets is, they start declaring the things of the Lord. <clears throat> Obviously, they're not doing what Saul wanted them to do. Then he himself went. He would be Saul, himself went. To Ramah and came to the great well that's in Seku, it's outside the town. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're in Naoh, in Ramah. And he went there to Naoh and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he also prophesied, and then he came to Naoh and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes. He too prophesied before Samuel. He lay naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Now, let's think about that for a minute. <clears throat> Saul sends three waves of messengers to this little camp outside Ramah, School of the Prophets, like a shepherd's den area. Every one of these groups of messengers, instead of seizing David and bringing him back and killing David, 
They're declaring the truth about God. They're proclaiming the truth about God. Saul is so angry. He goes down. And what does he start doing? Same thing. But did you notice something else? He strips off all his clothes. He's lying on the ground naked. What has God just done? Publicly brought Saul to his knees. Publicly humiliated Saul. This is an act of the Lord here. This is an act of the Lord showing what has happened to Saul. You could almost say he's a raving, humiliated madman. Wanting to kill David, God says, you are not going to kill David. And he begins to proclaim the things of the Lord. He strips off all his clothes, lying naked on the ground in front of these prophets. And that little phrase, which we saw that previously in chapter 10, is Saul also among the prophets? That's not a positive statement. That's a statement of satire, a statement of shame. Look at Saul. Is he among the prophets? Look at him. None of the other prophets are like that. Lying on the grass, lying on the dirt, naked. Saul is not fit to be king. God has publicly brought humiliation upon Saul. Will Saul repent now? Will he evidence a contrite heart being brought low by the powerful hand of God? Instead of killing David, he's declaring the truths about God. He strips himself of his clothes. I'm sorry, say it again. Yeah, Job says that. Job chapter one. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, yeah. I hope, I, guys, I hope you're with me here and what. This is an act of the Lord. The Lord is superintending all of these events. Saul has sent all his messengers and all these guys down to now with that little shepherd camp where the prophets are being trained to kill David. And what's the result? That's not going to happen. And each one of the groups of messengers are declaring and proclaiming the things of the Lord. And Saul's, well, you guys aren't going to do it. I'm going to do it. That's exactly what happens to him. (coughs) Saul is brought low. By the hand of God. And you would expect the cluster of verses to follow. And Saul repented with a contrite heart before the Lord. You don't see that. As a matter of fact, you will see exactly the opposite in what happens to Saul. The unspoken message here of the end of chapter 19 is Saul is not fit to be king. But he will not accept that. But the people will as they start to turn against Saul. And then his son starts to turn against him. And that, we're out of time here. I'm not going to start this. But 
chapter 20 is about Jonathan. At first, Jonathan can't believe what's happened to his dad. David, you must be misinterpreting some of this. And so chapter 19, chapter 20 is kind of a hard chapter, but it's a series of things that happened where David, now linked with Jonathan, is convinced Saul's going to kill me. And Jonathan does reach that point of conviction too. And they leave, depart one another. And David starts his run. He starts his life as a fugitive. And it's, it's tragic. But as I said earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago, God is going to use these ten and a half years to shape and mold David's character, deepen his faith, preparing him to be the king. I find I've done a study on this. Every time God chooses someone to be an important part of what he's doing in a part of the world or biblical history, whatever, he takes his time preparing that person. That's why over and over and over again in the New Testament, you want spiritual leadership? Don't don't put someone in a responsible leadership position who's just become a believer. They're not ready. Let God take time to develop and mature them. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, watch them, study them, be a student of them, make sure they're ready to be the leader you want them to be. Leadership is not just about filling slots. Leadership is about choosing the right person to do the right thing that God has prepared for them to be. And I'm talking about in the church. Okay. So tomorrow, what we'll, or I mean, uh, next Wednesday, what we'll do is we're going to look briefly at chapter 20, this situation with Jonathan. I'm going to go through that run quickly. And then, then the run, Saul, be, uh, David begins this run. And it's really fascinating, the situation, situation. And each one of these, I want to ask the question, what is God teaching David here? That's how we're going to approach this. Okay, are you with me? All right. My wife wanted me to go out this morning. In my class, she says, honey, go out and get the turkey for Christmas. Because if we don't get it, they're going to all pick out. Because she likes butterball turkeys, but they're small because, you know, we only have one of our kids living here. So I found a 14-pound butterball turkey at Walmart, and she was so excited, I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I don't know why I told you that, but it was just (laughs) one of the high points of my wife's life uh, uh, of this day. Because, I mean, if she went to two different places, she couldn't find it. There were 27-pound turkeys, (laughs) which we don't need at this point Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who grows and develops us through time. The Apostle Paul calls that the process of sanctification. In David's life, he, it's unbelievable how Saul turns on him. As he's becoming more popular, he becomes jealous. As the hand of the Lord is upon David, he becomes afraid, and he begins to act irrationally. That delusional paranoia grips him, and he does unbelievably ridiculous things. And we ended with with Saul in that camp of the prophets, lying naked on the on the soil. Lord, you you brought him down to get him to a point of repentance. He does not do that. And now you begin to train and develop and grow David to be the next king. You're going to take ten and a half years to do that, and that's what we want to study in the weeks that we have left in this book. 
So, Lord, apply it to our lives. We're all in process, regardless of our age. We're in the process of you, Heavenly Father, transforming us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. Help us to accept what you're doing, to allow you to continue to grow and mature and develop us. It never ends to the day you call us home. So help us to be aware of what you're doing, to learn the lessons you want us to learn, and to continue to grow and be the man of faith you're calling us to be. In your son's name we pray. Amen. See you next week.